You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is Brian McClanahan, your host, and this is episode 55, covering the week of January 23rd through January 27th, 2017. Glad to have you back on the program. Uh, Really excited about this week's worth of material because it had a definite theme and it uh, worked very nicely with some current events, So, and that was by design. But before we get to that, let's talk about our little housekeeping here. Remember that the Abbeville Institute exists on your generous contributions alone. If you like this podcast, if you like our website, if you like our material, if you like our programs, our summer school, our conferences, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to the Abbeville Institute. It will help keep the lights on, help keep this podcast and website going, uh, and We do have, I think, coming up in the near future, some uh, really exciting changes to our donation program. So uh, you might want to be looking for that. But uh, until then, uh, we've got, uh, we do uh, love anything you can do to help us out. Uh, We're uh, we're thankful for any donation you can provide and any support you can give. Uh, We are um, completely indebted to you for that. So uh, thank you again. If you've already made a donation, if you hadn't, please consider doing so. And also like us on uh, Facebook, on Twitter, and YouTube, and share our material. Uh, I know that um, a lot of times our uh, some of our material gets shared quite a bit on social media, and some of it doesn't. Uh, generally, the stuff that is more, um, uh, I should say, um, hard-hitting or political in nature tends to uh, get shared a little more than the stuff that's uh, much more academic. But it's the academic material that we hope also changes minds. And uh, so if you can share that material, if it's not quite as punchy, uh, it's still important. And we had a, a couple of pieces this week that kind of fell into that, uh, that little more academic side or uh, simply there to improve your uh, knowledge base when it comes to Southern history and culture, and particularly Southern women. This is a big topic, of course. So we had our uh, women's, quote-unquote, women's rights march on Washington, D.C., uh, this uh, past weekend, actually it was on, uh, I want to say it was on January 21st. Uh, January 21st, yes, they had, so Stonewall Jackson's birthday, uh, they had this Women's Rights March on Washington, D.C., and women's should be put in quotation marks because, uh, I guess, I mean, they're, they're, they're women biologically, but um, a lot of these people who went there are not what you would call ladies, and I started the week off with a piece on Ashley Judd, and it did receive quite a lot of uh, views. Uh, Ashley Judd gets nasty, and that's because, you know, Ashley Judd uh, is um, a product of the South in some ways. You know, her her, um, mother and sister are both country music singers. Um, Ashley Judd spent a lot of her time in in California, uh, but she did... um, uh, call Kentucky home for a time, I think, and um, also Tennessee. Uh, so she she has in her blood uh, a bit of southern rearing, but uh, she does not act like a lady. And I think that's something that we really wanted to show this week at the Institute, what it means to be a southern lady. And we had different, uh, different articles that uh, talk about that. And this piece started with a quote from, from Charlie Jan- Daniels from one of his songs, uh, Treat a woman like a lady and your lady like a queen. And the reason I put that at the beginning of the of the piece is because I wanted to play off something that Ashley Judd said. And she was at this uh, particular 
uh, March, she read a poem entitled, I'm a Nasty Woman. And um, this particular poem, I think, is a nice example of what what examples young women have today for how to live. Uh, and, and I say that, you know, I think the people listening to this podcast give their daughters and granddaughters and sisters and uh, cousins, I think they give them a little different uh, viewpoint on how to be a woman, how to be a lady. I know in my own household, uh, you know, my wife does. Uh, she she uh, is a different example of what it means to be a lady and a woman. Uh, but unfortunately, in a lot of cases, women go to school or women get out in society, and this is the, t- the kind of stuff that they see. This is, uh, you know, there were, there were young girls at this march, and people were watching it on TV. It was broadcast all over the place. And so the judge's diatribe begins with um, the fact that she was a feminist, and, of course, she was uh, uh, attacking racism, fraud, conflict of interest, homophobia, sexual assault, transphobia, white supremacy, misogyny, ignorance, and white privilege. And uh, this particular poem was written by a little... I say a sweet little, and that's, of course, tongue-in-cheek, uh, Tennessee donut shop employee named Nina Donovan. She's only 19 years old, and she thinks this is what it means to be a feminist. This is what it means to be a real woman nowadays, a nasty woman. And she blamed uh, all this mischief and oppression on uh, Confederate flags tattooed across my city. And then she says, maybe the South actually is going to rise again, and maybe for some it never fell. One would hope. And uh, that's exactly what I what I talk about in the piece. In fact, the Old South would have much to teach these nasty women about being a woman and being a lady. Uh, and so I talk about that. You know, you know, getting in the gutter isn't what it means to be a lady. And of course, uh, this is going to attract the wrong kind of man. And men, uh, modern men looking at this, think this is what it means to be a lady. And so... What happens is, I think this is quite quite evident, as women begin to act like this, men look at women differently. The push for men and women to be the same, what we're talking about here is not that one sex is better than the other, and I think this was made clear over and over again by women in the antebellum and postbellum South as they started talking about women's issues. No one ever thought, no one ever thinks that uh, one sex, I think when you look at the time period, and look what men and women said. No one ever thought that men were superior to women or women were inferior to men, but they were different. And I think that's the that's the key. Uh, when you look at what people were saying back at the time, no one no one said that well, women are just subordinate to men. That you know, uh, men are better. You did find that in the 17th century, the 16th century, even into the 18th century. By the time you got to the 19th century, I think that you had a far different perspective. Now, you did, of course, have people saying that women were inferior to men. But I think as you look at the feminist novels of the late 19th century or the mid-19th century, uh, you'll find that what women were saying and even men were saying at the time is that women were actually superior to men. <laughs> and uh, that's what, quote-unquote, misogyny was all about. Um, the Victorian age and what men were saying about women and putting them on a pedestal, it's showing that women were just better than men. Men got in the gutter. Politics was a nasty game that women didn't, shouldn't be a part of because they were much better than that. 
that what men was, were doing in society was um, something that uh, you just didn't want your daughters or your wife or your sister dragged into the mud like men had to get dragged into the mud. It was just a nasty business. And I'm using that phrase nasty because obviously this is what women want. They want to be in a nasty business. And um, I, I bring up in the example of uh, Augusta Jane Evans. She, she Later on, she was Augusta Jane Evans Wilson of Mobile. Now, in fact, she was actually um, not from Mobile originally. She settled there. Um, she uh, called Columbus, Georgia home for a time. Uh, and I say that neither, uh, you know, Judd nor Madonna, who was at this event, who gyrated around the stage and grabbed her crotch, uh, nor Donovan would consider Evans a feminist, but she was. I mean, Evans, of course, proudly waved the Confederate flag. Uh, she served as a nurse and watched hundreds of men suffer for the cause. Uh, and for her, I say the South never fell because an America without the Southern tradition had been America without its soul, which is true. She was highly intelligent. Uh, her books required the reader to have a level of education that I think most modern feminists probably lack. Uh, she never voted and didn't think it was proper for a woman to vote. But she was a product of her time. Of course, that, that opinion has changed. Uh, but she did express herself quite well. Uh, and I bring up the book St. Elmo. Now, some of this uh, particular piece was from my Politically Incorrect Guide to Real American Heroes, and I, and I put her in that book. Um, and this book, St. Elmo, is one of the most important feminist novels of the uh, 19th century. But if you're reading it now, it's not a modern feminist novel, but it is a feminist no novel because the, the main character, the heroine of the novel, Edna Earle, is a real feminist. Uh, now, she uh, is critical of what were called blue stockings. Uh, blue stockings were educated women uh, who shunned the traditional role of wife, mother, and caregiver. And they shunned it to go into politics and speaking engagements. And so uh, uh, Earl, uh, or I should say Evans through Earl, is very critical of this. You know, Edna Earl is a, a devout, pious, pure, well-read, beautiful, and intelligent young woman. She's the model of Christian virtue. And then she falls in love with an immoral scoundrel named St. Elmo, uh, and she makes him come to her. She makes him reform himself before she will even give herself to him. I think that's important. Women do hold all the power in society. They always have. If they held men to higher standards, which is what they're not doing by being a nasty woman, society would be different. Um, and uh, the problem is that women don't require men to be at a higher standard. Uh, men are going to be in the gutter unless they're forced not to be. And I think that's pretty clear over time. So it's important for women to hold themselves at a higher standard and also for men to want women to hold themselves at a higher standard. And I think this is something the Old South can teach the New. This is something the Old South can teach America. And one of the other interesting things about this particular um, uh, character, and Evans would say, uh, Evans argued that uh, women should jealously contend, quote, jealously contend for every woman's right which God and nature has decreed to the sex. The right to be learned, wise, noble, useful, and women's divine limited sphere. Sphere, the right to influence and exalt the circle in which she moved. The right to mount the sanctified bema of her own quiet hearthstone. The right to modify and direct her husband's opinions. The right to make her children ornaments to the nation. The right to advise, to plead, to pray. The right to make her desk at Delphi, if God so permitted. The right to be all that the phrase noble Christian woman means. 
But she said, do not trail your, her, a woman's heaven-born purity through the dust and mire of political strife. And then she says this, the tendency of the age was to equality and communism, and this she contended was undermining the golden throne shining in the blessed and hallowed light of the earth, whence every true woman ruled the realm of her own family. Regarding every pseudo-reform which struck down the social and political distinction of the sexes as a blow that crushed one of the pillars of woman's throne, she earnestly warned the crowned heads of the danger to be apprehended from the unfortunate and deluded female malcontents. And to be proud, happy mothers guarded by Praetorian bands of children, she reiterated the assurance that to those who rock the cradle rule the world. And this is so true today. Women control the world by what they teach their children and how they teach their children to act. I think women should have been embarrassed to see other women up there on that stage doing what they're doing and saying what they're saying. That was an embarrassment. But this is what people think is feminism today. Whereas Edna Earl would be some quaint provincial, you know, nothing. But Edna Earl was a feminist, saying that women are important. And women, not only that, women, women rule the world. Women, Edna Earl, or Augusta Jane Evans said, uh, ennoble and refine humanity. And so this is what's being lost as Ashley Judd gets nasty. And of course, I'm going where angels dare to tread because um, I'm saying things that are not lockstep with modern society. But everything we put on the website this week was an example of Southern women and what Southern women can offer, what these Confederate flags tattooed across every city can offer to modern society. This is exactly what America needs for both sexes. Treating your woman like a lady and a lady like a queen is old South. But then again, that's exactly what we need. And women respond to that. And if they held themselves to a higher level, men would have to meet that and just to get their attention. That's a challenge and something that men are happy not to have to do anymore. I mean, frankly, this is, this is the issue. If you allow men not to have to meet the challenge, if you allow men not to have to meet a higher standard, they won't. And they'll treat you nasty. And women wonder sometimes why men treat them poorly because women want to be nasty. It appeals to the animalistic side of man. You know, just hit them over the head with a club and procreate. You don't have to court them. You don't have to converse with them. There's nothing there. You just treat them like dirt, treat them nasty, and it doesn't matter. Now, I know, again, women listen to this podcast or men who listen to this podcast, I'm sure that there's a, a different approach to how you treat your, your women and uh, how you want your daughters and your sisters and uh, you know how you want your wife or girlfriend treated. But this is why this particular week was so important, because it's a playoff what these, what these women were saying in Washington, D.C. So the next piece we ran was entitled Forgotten Heroines of the Confederacy. So these are women who proudly waved the Confederate flag, but they were so important to the South. Uh, they were, uh, as the author uh, Anne Funderburg says, true adventurers are often as daring and romantic as Scarlett's, Scarlett O'Hara's fictional life. And so she gives you a number of women who did pretty amazing things, extraordinary things during the war, acting as spies, leading uh, a charge, 
trying to make sure uh, there was information passed on to soldiers uh, so that uh, they weren't overrun by Union troops. And these women uh, were women, but of course the men recognized their contribution, their value to the Confederate cause, to their cause for independence. Uh, one of them was a, uh, a woman named Lola Sanchez. So here you have uh, you know, someone who's from Cuba, a Cuban, Lola Sanchez. Um, uh, and her, her role in warning Confederate soldiers about an impending Union attack. Uh, and uh, you had uh, spies like uh, Lottie and Jenny Moon in Virginia uh, who worked to, again, pass information on to Confederate lines. Uh, you had one particular woman uh, who was imprisoned uh, for, uh, for being a spy. And um, one of those women was named uh, Robbie Woodruff. And Robbie Woodruff was put in prison and essentially died because of the horrible treatment she received for being a spy. Um, so these are real women, and they, they fit within their role in society, but yet they did some pretty extraordinary things. And we go back and look at it and say, oh, they were just old South women. They just sat around fanning themselves and didn't do anything. This is just not true. These women did, I mean, even, even Augusta Jane Evans, you know, working as a nurse, uh, seeing the things she saw there. These were extraordinary women. And I think what, what's often missed when we look at our, our uh, when we take time to read um, the story of the war and then the Reconstruction period and what's often called the lost cause, uh, we miss how these women were revered across the South. In fact, uh, there were statues put up to the women of the South and their quiet devotion and dedication to the war. The war would not have been possible had women not supported it because they had to stay home and they had to, they had to suffer through the deprivations of uh, uh, lack of food and supplies. And this was a tough time for them too. So again, we forget that as we simply think that the Old South, as Nina Donovan thought, was just uh, you know, women who were kept and stupid. This wasn't the case. Many of these women were well-educated, as we're going to talk about the last piece. Uh, the piece on Wednesday by Clyde Wilson entitled A Bow to the Ladies is about uh, Mary Lee Settle, who is a great author, also others. Um, and if you're not familiar with uh, several uh, women Southern authors, uh, this is a very nice piece. Again, it's it's a little more dense in that it's more academic, uh, but I think these are the kind of things that we want people to read. So he talks about Flannery O'Connor and, of course, Settle and Eudora Welty a little bit. And the next one of the pieces, the next piece of the week, was on Eudora Welty. Uh, he talks about Elizabeth Maddox Roberts, and some of these people are just not household names. Uh, Carolyn Gordon. Um, so. Unfortunately, when you go to a modern uh, literature course in your college, you're probably not going to get a whole lot of Southern writers. You might get some, and I think some people do uh, a better job than others in making sure that Southern writers are, are part of the 
canon of literature that you get. But, uh, you know, I remember taking a, a literature course as an undergraduate, and I took another cor- course on understanding poetry, and we didn't read anyone from the South. No one. Now, this is uh, this was in a Maryland college, uh, but the uh, and and the professor I actually quite liked him. He was a liberal, but uh, he was a he was a nice fellow and um, very well educated. But uh, he didn't uh, he didn't have any interest in Southern writers. Now, at the time of my life, when I was uh, taking this course, I was I think twenty years old, and I didn't really know much about Southern writers. That that came later in life from studying with people like Clyde Wilson. But I think it's important, this is, one of the things I like about the Clyde Wilson pieces every week, it's like you get to study with Clyde Wilson. Uh, People have asked me before what it was like to study with Clyde Wilson. Well, I can tell you, just go out and read his work. That's what it's like to study with Clyde Wilson. Uh, So this is why we do this, why we put all this material up there, because everyone now can be a Clyde Wilson student. It's it's the benefit of the Internet. And um, this particular piece goes into detail on Settle's works, and gives you a nice uh, reason why these books are so important to Southern literature and the South in general, and Southern culture, and uh, because her her series of books, uh, the Beulah Quintet, really gets into what it was like to be in the South from essentially the founding of of uh, the Jamestown Colony forward into the 20th century, uh, and so you know what it's like to be in Virginia during that time. Uh, and she has a real nice way of putting Virginia culture. And so Mary Lee Settle was a very educated woman, a world traveler. Uh, she was um, she was not uh, someone who um, was just, again, a kept woman. Uh, she had a journalistic career. Uh, and so she didn't make a lot of money, she said it, but... Writing was uh, something that really just, just, she said, if you can't do it, or if you can do it and you don't, you're missing, you're, you're missing out. If you can be a writer and you don't do it, you are missing out. So I think that uh, reading you know, Settle and, and other women, other women, uh, women uh, authors of the South, is just an important part of understanding what Southern women were. And uh, we miss that because we think that it's like Nina Donovan. The problem with the Nina Donovan poem is that this is the common perception of the South. I should say misperception, misconception of the South. Uh, and that Southern women can't be feminist because they were real women. They were ladies. And I would dare say that uh, Settle was a lady. That Eudora Welty, the, the, the subject of the piece on Thursday, was a lady. That Flannery O'Connor was a lady. That Roberts was a lady. These people were ladies refined, educated, a real challenge for men, women that elevated men to a different level. And so the piece on Thursday, My Fantasy Visit with Eudora Welty, was written by Wayne Hogan. Now, Wayne Hogan, I believe he's still alive. Uh, I'm not certain about that. This piece was actually published in Southern Partisan back in the 1990s, but um, I believe Hogan lives in Tennessee still, he's, he's, uh, and he's an artist and a writer, and uh, again, a man who always wears a suit, from what I understand. Some of the information I read about him recently. But he always wears a suit. He's always well-dressed, press shirt. His wife is a real Southern lady. And you can get that through reading this piece and what he thought about women. And some of this, this, this piece just oozes with... He, now, Mr. Hogan has received some, some uh, well, er, well-deserved, uh, positive... 
uh, accolades for his writing style, and he's very good. Um, and you can see that. This piece just drips with that. So he says, Eudora Welty, one of America's all-time great writers, one of America's all-time great Southern writers, master short story writer, the best maybe. And he says, I've always had this secret fantasy that she and I, we'd meet, maybe share a tall glass of lemonade. Lemonade. I mean, he doesn't say a tall drink. A glass of lemonade. Talk about, oh, Truman Capote, maybe. I'd ask her things like, what was Truman Capote really like? Things like that. And he says, in this visit I fantasize having with, with Eudora Welty, she'd graciously answer my pestering questions that, in that uniquely Mississippi way I'd imagine she'd has of speaking molasses soft and ever so careful with her words. Like she only had so many and didn't want, couldn't bear to waste even one, as though she were giving directions to a hopelessly lost four-year-old who'd come to her crying uncontrollably, asking how to go home. Then each word she'd utter would have just the exactly proper spacing between each one, their sounds coming out slowly, resembling somewhat a Norman Rockwell painting of a red-headed, freckle-faced, gap-toothed little boy seated at the local soda fountain sipping a tall chocolate milkshake, the kind they don't make anymore. I'd ask Miss Welty. Yes, I'd call her Miss Welty. Wouldn't dare call her Eudora. Can't ever bear to think such presumptuousness. Why, she'd spent nearly her whole life down there in Jackson, Mississippi, where she was born. Why, she'd not become early on a denizen, a player up in the great big New York City, say. And, of course, the way she portrays Welty, this soft, very feminine way, but highly educated, this man just wanting to learn from this educated lady. She dare not talk politics. Why she liked photography. And, of course, the setting, he says, on her front porch. And there'd be huge Georgia clay red earthen pots of big green leafing, leaf flowers plants sitting around. And between us there'd be a long white wicker table with a tall glass of lemonade placed at each end on hand-sewn dolly coasters, red and yellow checkered linen napkins folded beside each one, the tiny letters EW embroidered in antique blue on the corners. And there'd be three large white ceiling fans hanging above us, slicing slowly through the human Mississippi air. Again, it's the environment. It's being a lady. You wouldn't see Eudora Welty up there gyrating around, getting nasty. But this woman, this woman was so important to Southern culture and society. And she loved Mississippi. Wouldn't dare say that her, that her town was tattooed with Confederate flags. It was. That was part of who she was. Why she didn't go to New York City? Because Mississippi was her home. Mississippi was where she was from. Mississippi was in her blood and bones. And that's what made her who she was. She didn't run from that. She didn't try to be something else. Even if Southern writers were critical of the South. That's not who they were. And then we conclude the week with a piece by Julia, uh, I'm sorry, Julia Dean Freeman. Again, a 19th century author and critic on uh, she, she wrote an entire book on Southern women writers, and this is one of the chapters. It was published in um, the 1860s. And um, this chapter is on Octavia Walton Levert. Now, Levert, Madame Levert, was at one time one of the most recognized and well-known women, not only in the uh, American women, not only in the United States, but also in the world. 
and Madame Levert had such a neat story. Now, um, this this piece was written before Levert died in the 1870s, and uh, her life took a turn after the war. She did serve as a Confederate nurse, but she was lukewarm to secession, and after the war was over, uh, Madame Levert, because of her contacts and other things, uh, moved quite well with Union soldiers and uh, after the war, and uh, she spent a lot of time in the north in New York City, and so she was ostracized eventually, and then she uh, never really was well accepted in the South again. But Madame Levert is so important for understanding Southern history and culture. Um, she was a real woman of the South. In fact, she was called at one point the Sweet Rose of Florida. And if you look at the history of Florida, uh, her father uh, was important, and grandfather, of course, signed the Declaration of Independence. He's from Virginia. But her father... Uh, was one of the most important people in Florida history. Uh, Madame Levert lived in Pensacola and then moved over to Tallahassee. In fact, the rumor is that she's the one that chose the name Tallahassee for the capital of the, of the state. Uh, and uh, she was very well educated. In fact, here's a woman that could speak fluently uh, French, Spanish, and Italian and was acting as her father's translator. Um, she... Uh, knew uh, Washington Irving, in fact, rode a carriage with him oftentimes. Didn't know it at first, but rode a carriage with him. They struck up a conversation that he told a story about being in Spain, which if you know anything about Washington Irving, and I wrote a piece uh, about Washington Irving long t- three years ago on the website in his uh, state of Sunnyside, uh, you'll know that he loves Spanish culture, and so he's telling the story about a bullfight, and Madame Lavert speaks up and says, you are Washington Irving. He says, well, how do you know I am Washington Irving? He says, she says, because I heard the same story from someone who was there with you. And that's the only way she would have known it. And so these two became fast friends, and she spent time at Sunnyside. And Irvin, Irving was uh, an admirer of Southern culture. He loved the South, was highly critical of Yankees all the time. So here you have this woman uh, who's just so refined. She knew uh, Henry Clay and John C. Calhoun and Daniel Webster took notes of their speeches. Um, she uh, she was just such an impressive person, and everyone loved her. She was the shining example of a Southern belle, a Southern socialite. And so she was a real woman. And I think that's what makes this piece so important. Again, it's a nice example of a real woman. Mount Vernon, for example, would not be Mount Vernon today without Madame Lavert, who was going out and raising money to preserve the property. Even during the war, there was kind of this uh, truce between the North and the South over Mount Vernon, but here's this Southern woman who saved Mount Vernon. Uh, and uh, how important that became to, to American history. Uh, she knew Marquis de Lafayette, uh, could speak fluent French with him. And when he returned to the United States on his grand tour in the 19th century, she spent time with him because uh, her mother could not do so, or her, uh, it was her grandmother, I'm sorry, I believe, could not do so. Uh, so this was uh, you know, such an important part of Southern history and how to be a woman. And I think that's something, again, we just need to keep emphasizing. Uh, Clyde's title, A Bow to the Ladies, is important. There was a bow, a real respect for women in the South. A real respect. And it's something you have to work on. Getting nasty in the gutter is easy. 
being a lady is harder. And men treating women like ladies is harder. It's not easy. It's easier just to club them with a with your uh, you know club and treat them like a caveman. That's easier. That's simple. That's just being an animal. But this is what culture is all about. It's about refinement and manners. Manners are a way of showing people respect. And I think that's something that's lost with these nasty women. They don't even see what they're doing. They are creating the climate by which they're not respected by acting the way they do. Why would men treat them any differently? Why would men treat them with respect? You don't have to. Just be nasty. If you're nasty, that's what you're going to get in return. And I think that's, uh, you know, for, for the South, and as I said in the beginning of the, of the week, that's something the Old South can teach. We, we look at the Abbeville Institute for what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition, and that's one thing, manners. How to treat a woman. And again, a woman, how to treat a man. Uh, men want to be treated a certain way as well. And I think that uh, you know, the way that Edna Earl engaged herself, she, she, was, uh, she understood how to treat men, how to treat them with respect. That's something that I think a lot of men would like too, to be treated with respect. Women would like to be treated with respect, and so would men. And if both sexes demand that, I think that you would have a much more civil and enjoyable place to live. And that is something the Old South can't teach us. And why we did a whole week on women, Southern women, Southern ladies, very importantly. Southern ladies. It doesn't mean that women uh, you know, are put into a, a kept away and that nobody can see them. In fact, you want people to see them because of what they are. Beautiful creatures, beautiful people. You put them on that pedestal because you admire them and respect them for all of their virtue and all of their guidance. And so that's uh, something that the Old South can't teach us. And I, I think it's important to play off that idiotic Ashley Judd recitation of that stupid, nasty woman's uh, poem with what real Southern women are. Until next time, good day. Good day.